Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. In the spring of 1872, a man photographed a horse, writes Rebecca Solnit, in her landmark work on San Francisco's own Edward Moybridge, the photographer, inventor, and murderer. And somehow, because of how the world was moving, the people involved, and where it happened on the future Stanford campus, this simple act serves as a creation story for California's two most far-reaching industries, those we've come to call Hollywood and Silicon Valley. Moybridge is the subject of a new documentary out now, Exposing Moybridge, and we've got both Rebecca Solnit and its director here to discuss how exactly this one man changed time forever. That's coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. There are few more San Francisco characters than Edward Moybridge. Came from the old world, changed his name, built a business from nothing, explored the glorious backwoods of Northern California, transformed the world with technology, and had a slight habit of deception. Mark Schaefer's new documentary, Exposing Moybridge, opens with a parade of historians and writers trying to describe the man in just a word. Tricky. Um, In a certain way, daring. I almost said crazy. Eccentric? Duplicitous. He's temperamental, volatile. I don't have to like him. I like his work. I like what he did. Ego. He wanted to be seen as... I don't know if it was the god or the devil. Joining us to talk about this particular art monster, this inventor, this inspiration for future artists and scientists, we're joined by Mark Schaefer, director of the documentary Exposing Moybridge. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Alexis. And we've also got Rebecca Solnit, author and essayist. She is the author of River of Shadows, Edward Moybridge and the Technological Wild West, among her many other brilliant works I think about most days of my life, like Orwell's Roses, A A Paradise Built in Hell, Men Explain Things to Me, and hope in the dark. Welcome, Rebecca. Lovely to be here. So, Rebecca, you got a whole book to describe Moybridge, of course. But when you think of him, can you do the exercise that they did in the film? Like, does one word come to mind that could gesture at what he and his project were? I would say cipher. Hmm. He's a bit of an enigma, and he left a very thin paper trail. 
That was more than one word, but we'll start with cipher. <laughs> uh, Mark, why don't you give us, like, why do you think people who've never heard of Edward Muybridge should care about this particular character? Uh, he changed our world with his camera. We're still living in Edward Muybridge's world. And uh, he really is a kind of pivot before uh, between the past and where we are today. I think of him more as a prequel uh, to today than an antique that we pull off a shelf from yesterday and kind of admire as a object from the past. Um, he's kind of the beginning of now. I was at Pixar last week, and they told me they still use Moybridge's motion studies to figure out positioning figures. And I've heard that from visual artists and other people over the years. I love that he's, you know, very much a Victorian and also completely, you know, useful, relevant, and almost cutting edge. Yeah. You know, Mark, this is the thing that he became most famous for. So let's just describe it um, here at the top. What What is a, a motion study or what were at least Moybridge's motion studies? Sure. So he worked in a, a medium called wet plate photography, which was glacially slow. I mean, most of us don't know where photography came from. I didn't know what it was prior to the little cell phones we carry around, or I'm old enough to remember film cameras. Uh, but wet plate photography was a process where photographers would go out into the world. It was only 20 or 30 years after the medium was invented. And they'd have to take pieces of glass that was the film that they used, treat them in a, a wet Chemist, chemical mixture that they created themselves, uh, f a photograph an object that didn't move or it would disappear, uh, and develop it on the spot. And imagine going to a place like Rebecca did and I did, uh, Yosemite at the time, which is in the middle of nowhere, and having to carry all this glass, all this chemistry, all this water, uh, a mobile uh, darkroom that you have to develop your work in right then on the spot and then cart it back to uh, San Francisco and, and develop it and make it into photographs. Uh, so in the 1870s, Ed, uh, Leland Stanford, the uh, Stanford University, railroads, former governor, uh, he's a horseman. Uh, Rebecca has some very colorful descriptions of his farm in her book. Uh, and he's uh, there's a debate at the time as to whether a uh, horse, when it's running, which you can't quite see its feet, whether its hooves are all off the ground at the same time, he thinks they are, other people think they aren't. He approaches Edward Mybridge with this newfangled technology, and he thinks, well, we'll just take a picture, and that'll settle the debate. Uh, Mybridge tells him it's not possible. Uh, the, the medium hasn't reached such a beautiful perfection. And uh, Stanford insists, and Stanford is Stanford, he gets his way. And Mybridge proceeds uh, to uh, figure out a way, first in, uh, unfortunately, a lost photograph from 1872, uh, but then ultimately in 1878 on uh, Stanford's farm in, in uh, Palo Alto, he sets up an array of single cameras, uh, blasts them with light uh, from the sun. There's no electricity mm -hmm. at the time. Uh, he has the horse horses gallop past, and he figures out a way by designing shutters and working with Stanford's engineers uh, to fire his cameras fast enough to get these silhouette-y, grainy images of horses running. And in that's motion. what he did. Yeah. In motion, that's right. Rebecca, I mean, in your words, this would be kind of the moment when he, quote-unquote, like, split the second. Yeah, he had both... Uh, the chemistry and the, the shutter technology of photography transformed to make these motion pictures, which catch, captured motion faster than the human eye could see. 
And he got Stanford's trotting horses and then turned to human beings tumbling and jumping and doing all these other things. And Stanford really thought the whole project was just about horses, which he was, as Mark said, obsessed with. Muybridge understood this was much more profound, much bigger. It was changing the very nature of what we could see. And he then you take a dozen pictures sequentially of a horse in motion. He invented this thing called the zoopraxiscope that united magic lanterns and zoetropes so that you could project these images to reproduce motion. And uh, that is really the genesis of motion pictures. And it probably, so far as we can tell, all began on a no longer extant racetrack near Golden Gate Park in the Richmond District in San Francisco. And so that's the genesis of motion pictures. It changes the very way people see the world. All these people, including some very famous people, painting horses in motion, realize that the rocking horse gallop is not how horses move. And, you know, and they face this kind of crisis in painting. Do you paint the way things look to the naked eye or the way the camera sees them? But for me, what was exciting about this experiment was that it was the genesis of two California things that would change the world, uh, Hollywood and Silicon Valley, motion pictures, and because Stanford was behind it, who founded Stanford University, which begat, for better or worse, Silicon Valley, which, for better or worse, ate San Francisco alive. But that's another story. <laughs> One uh, you've told very well, actually. Grr. And, um, you know, so it's this incredibly generative moment in so many ways. And part of the 19th century transformation of human consciousness as suddenly all these machines accelerate our lives and move us from living in the kind of slow, natural time we've always lived in to being able to travel faster, with the railroad communicate faster, with the telegraph see faster, and hold, you know, what the, what you see with photography in ways that had never been possible before. Well, cause, Mark, tell us a little bit about where Boybridge came from, which sort of really does, you mentioned him as a pivot from the old world to the new, and he really comes from... That old world, I think in Rebecca's book, she talks about how, you know, the world he grew up in, many people never went more than a day's walk from their house, died blocks from where they were born. Is that the kind of world that Moybridge is from? Yeah. Uh, He's born in 1830 in Kingston-upon-Thames, which is outside London. His family runs barges uh, between Kingston and London, uh, uh, carrying coal and corn. Uh, He's born into the old world. Uh, uh, you have a phrase in your book, and others have said it as well, the fastest form of communication were pigeons, okay? The fastest form of of transportation was a horse. And I think the year he's born, if I remember correctly, is the year that a train comes to his uh, town for the first time. Is that right? No, am I missing that? It's the first, it's the year that the first passenger railroad runs, and it goes 30 miles an hour, which to people seems astonishingly speedy and a guy gets run over in the demonstration because a train coming at you to at 30 miles an hour which you know I deal with cars on my bicycle you know at that speed all the time but it's so fast people can hardly perceive it 
And uh, so, like, a politician gets run over and his leg is severed and he dies on the spot. And welcome to motorized transportation. (laughs) Exactly. When I talk about uh, uh, ups and downs, glass half full, glass half empty, Uh, it changes all right there. And uh, by the time he dies in 1904, look, think of all the things we have. You know, we have airplanes, we have uh, telephones, we have uh, radio, we have all these. uh, uh, There's just a million things. And cameras, which are the first photograph that we have is from 1826. But the medium really comes of age in the 30s. Uh, And so, you know, he comes of age in a time that's swirling with change. And he's a product of that time. And he's a contributor to that time. And so it's very familiar to our own. And here we are in the Bay Area, which is a, you know, sort of a ground zero of technological transformation. And so that's another way he anticipates who we are today. Rebecca, you call San Francisco at that time the capital of the unknown land. Just give us a a sketch of San Francisco at that time. Moybridge arrived in the 1850s when the gold rush was in full swing. It was a city of young men. There was a huge disproportion between men and women um, in population. You know, we'd only recently stolen Mexico's northern half and called it the U.S. Southwest in California. Uh, You know, beyond San Francisco, a lot of native Californians were still on their land doing what they had been doing for thousands of years, but were suffering the genocide um, through direct violence and the destruction of their food sources and culture and displacement. Uh, A lot of uh, Chinese men had emigrated who would go to work building the railroad. But San Francisco was like this weird little capital in utter isolation. To get there, you either spent many weeks traveling by covered wagon or some other means across the Great Plains and all this stuff where there's very little um, kind of white, you know, Euro-American presence, or you took a ship, um, you know, trekked across the isthmus, you know, the narrow waste of Central America and got on another ship or sailed all the way around Central America. It was so remote, and this is one of the things that's hard for people to imagine now, and we were so far away from anything, and and, um, and then Leland Stanford was one of the big four um, who built the railroad, and changed everything uh, and sped it all up. We're talking about the pioneering photography of Edward Moybridge with Rebecca Solnit and Mark Schaefer, director of the documentary Exposing Moybridge. We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the pioneering photography of Edward Muybridge. He's based in San Francisco, and in 1872, he took a photo of a horse. Turns out to be a, a, a real moment and creation story for both the motion picture industry, eventually known as Hollywood, and technology technology industry, eventually known as Silicon Valley. We're joined by Rebecca Solnit, author and essayist, and she wrote a book called River of Shadows, Edward Moybridge and the Technological Wild West, as well as Orwell's Roses, Recollection of My Non-Existence, many other uh, great books. We're also joined by Mark Schaefer, who's director of the new documentary, Exposing Moybridge, film streaming on Apple, uh, YouTube, Amazon Prime. There's actually going to be a live screening in Menlo Park at the Guild Theater on uh, March 16th. Before we went to the break, um, Rebecca, you were describing how isolated uh, San Francisco really was, that you had to come, you know, weeks across the plains, you'd have to go, you know, across Central America after taking a a ship to what is now Panama, or you'd have to go around uh, South America. And then the Transcontinental Railroad um, is built. Yeah, and it's this incredible technological project, this incredible endeavor of human labor, much of it on the western half, done by Chinese immigrants. And suddenly you can get from New York to San Francisco in about a week. It actually changes the scale of the world along with steamships. The world felt immeasurably vast because traveling took months and years to go places. And Jules Verne, you know, a little while later will write, Around the World in 80 Days, and a pioneering woman journalist actually does go around the world, I think in less time than that. Uh, it's been a while. I'm this, I wrote this book in 2000, <laughs> I published it in 2003. But so the very scale of the U.S. changes. Suddenly San Francisco is really integrated into the U.S. in a different way. And the railroad barons become these tremendously wealthy, tremendously corrupt, tremendously powerful figures who will control California in a lot of ways, most of them not very pretty, for the next several decades. Yeah. And these, Mark, these are, well, at least one of them, uh, Leland Stanford, is the patron of uh, Moybridge's most famous work. That's right. Um, You know, Moybridge and and Stanford developed this uh, odd relationship. Uh, I think Moybridge profoundly misreads the relationship. And, uh, you know, uh, Stanford, like he does with most people, sees Moybridge as a tool of his own imagination or desires. And Mybridge, I think, misreads Stanford as not only a patron but as a friend, uh, which ends badly for Mybridge. Uh, Mybridge has a, a, a knack for uh, getting himself into trouble and then remarkably getting himself out of trouble. He's like the original Weeble. He wobbles, but he doesn't fall down. Inspector Gadget, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, one of the fascinating things that I've thought about in photography in San Francisco at the at at the time was like there are a lot of photographers and there's lots and lots of people coming out of uh out of the west taking photos of yosemite taking photos of the the whole west and it's always been a question to me of like why were there so many photographers we're going to listen to a cut of a stanford historian richard white at least providing one answer to that question everything is changing where a way of life which had gone on for quite literally millennia is now over and Moybridge is a part of it. Photography is used to sell bonds for the railroads, and it's used to bring people west as tourists and to bring them west as settlers. Certainly, Moybridge is selling the west. Yeah. Is that how you think of his project record? Or do you think he was sort of more um, an adjunct to this marketing plan of marketing California? I, 
you have to make a living. And one of the things happening is that the gold rush, California, these gigantic trees, these mountains, this remoteness, this wealth, this differentness, people are fascinated and there's a huge market. I mean, so many people see images of Yosemite from the photographs of Carlton Watkins, Moybridge, and the other first few to get there, long before very many non-Native people have ever actually been there. So it's very postmodern in that people are really experiencing the representation before the actuality. Moybridge definitely, you know, he's making a living, he's taking assignments, but he's a very quirky guy who's doing a lot of it his way. He's not always, he turns down assignments if he considers them artistically displeasing, which in his murder trial, which I'm sure we'll get to, is part of the evidence that he's supposed to be, you know, crazy. And he's clearly deeply engaged with the creative tasks at hand. So, like, I make a living from books, you know. Um, he makes a living from photographs. I, you know. Yeah. And yeah. you yeah. want to sell something, but that's not the only thing you want. <laughs> Go ahead. I was going to say that, uh, you know, I, I admired and, 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 and identified with Mybridge's habit of hijacking his commissions. He had to make a living. It was difficult. Uh, I work in film. Films are very expensive. I have to get somebody to buy the film, to pay me to make a film. Often I don't have exactly the right, I don't, my, my interests don't line up with my commissioner's interests, and I'm always trying to somehow hijack my commission and make the film I want to make and get it, get it on their air. <laughs> and, and I saw that in his work. You know, he would uh, get hired uh, to make, uh, he went to Alaska, for instance, in the film, and he's hired to shoot military forts and harbors for the U.S. Army. Uh, and he comes back with these beautiful pictures of native Tlingit people, the first uh, pictures of native Tlingit people that were aware of, were ever taken. This is very common. He goes to Central America on behalf of the Pacific Mail Steamship Company and uh, documents their coffee uh, plantations, but takes, again, beautiful, exquisite pictures. Almost always his pictures feature native people because those are the people he's encountering at this time as the U.S. is pushing west, and he's being hired by the pushers, by the people who are, you know, yeah. uh, settling the west uh, for the United States. So I, I've, I identified with and admired his capacity to essentially steal his commissions for his own ends. Rebecca, you have a complex relationship, or you describe a kind of complex relationship between the photographer and the native people that he photographs, right? That you you see that he may have had a different relationship to them or at least tried to represent a different relationship to them than some of the other photographers of the day. I Moybridge is an Englishman by origin. I think he doesn't get you the US prejudices which are so anti Native American. Mark Twain is lionized a lot for you know, Huckleberry Finn and um, you know, being anti slavery, etc. But he's wrote grotesquely racist things about Native people. I think Moybridge looked really respectfully at the Native people he photographed. And he did it so extensively, as Mark points out, that I think had he not, and he keeps eclipsing himself, we would have seen him as a great urban photographer if it wasn't for the landscape photographs. As a great landscape photographer, you know, if it weren't for the motion studies. And another thing he did quite extensively up and down the West and in Central America, again, as Mark pointed out, is photograph Native people. And they always feel respectful 
in a way, you know, that they're not looking to replicate the justifications for genocide and things like that. He feels like, you know, he's an outsider and he's meeting people kind of where they're at. Mm-hmm. We're talking about Edward Moybridge, his photography, his contributions as kind of the wild uncle of Silicon Valley and uh, the motion picture industry. Have you seen Moybridge's work? What'd you make of it? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. You know, we're also curious if how you think about photography, whether you think it tells the truth, whether you think it lies. We're going to get to that this hour as well. The number is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. You know, Mark, we did mention uh, that he did have a murder trial. He did kill someone. Um, Can you give us the brief sketch? I don't want to dwell on his personal life that much, but just give us a brief sketch of kind of what what happens in Moybridge's personal life during this time when he is making this work. Well, you know, that's the thing about him that makes him such a great subject for uh, Rebecca or myself is that he's not just a a beautiful photographer or an incredibly interesting, with an interesting eye, living an interesting time. He lives this totally melodramatic life. The most melodramatic aspect of it is this unfortunate murder uh, involving uh, a romantic rival. He he's much older than his wife. He marries a woman twenty years his junior, uh, and uh, is always off gallivanting about on these very lengthy expeditions. And she's lonely, and she's a bit of a firecracker. And she lives in San Francisco, and she likes the theater. And originally, he sort of supports this idea that she go out uh, with this gentleman, Harry Larkins, uh, who's a theater critic and a bit of a scalawag, um, and uh, and and enjoy his time, her time while he's away. But this ends badly. Uh, the uh, not surprisingly, she and and Larkins uh, strike up an affair. Mybridge discovers it, and. Uh, you know, the rest is history, as they say. And he, he ends up uh, shooting him in Calistoga. Uh, he's tried for the crime uh, in Napa. And, uh, well, spoiler alert, uh, the <laughs> jury of, uh, of, of 11 men, 11 married men, um, uh, uh, side with him. Yeah. Rebecca, I mean, I thought a lot about this murder, and I thought how differently... We would read him if he had, say, killed his wife versus Harry Larkins or, you know, that there is something about this moment and this murder that is very ugly. And yet it kind of does. We we do kind of move past it for some reason. Um, How did you how did you end up kind of reconciling this violence as as part of who Moybridge was? Well, I came away feeling if you had to shoot somebody, Harry Larkins, who is this real, this bragging, lying, you know, cheating, opportunistic man about town, wasn't a bad choice. And he, you know, various other women mourned him at his funeral. Uh, he was he was really a dirtbag, um, as we say nowadays. And yeah, I thought, you know, mostly people kill their, you know, a lot of. It's we used to be until recently considered justifiable homicide to kill your cheating wife, and uh, it was in Brazil until very recently. 
But in the Victorians often considered women, first of all, you know, a wife was property. And so somebody else had kind of like despoiled your property rights was how they looked at it. I just wasn't that interested in it. I wasn't that interested in Moybridge. And so for writing this book, which for me was very much about the annihilation of time and space and the transformations that Moybridge was pivotal to or lived through, I was like, how am I going to tell this without breaking the kind of continuity of the book? And what I loved is Moybridge discovers evidence that makes him think his son is not his own. It's Harry Larkin's child. And this sequence of transit events happens. He rushes down from the studio on Montgomery Street to the the docks, catches a ferry to Vallejo, a train to Calistoga, and rents a stagecoach and manages in a matter of a few hours to cover... You know, he's moving about as, um, I think, almost as fast as I would now in my car. And, um, you know, and there's this kind of like, it's almost like taking a photograph, kind of stopping, freezing Harry Larkins in this moment in time. So, you know, so I got through it and went back to the annihilation of time and space. Yeah, yeah. We, I think we can follow that same trajectory here. Um, I There is a, a, a comment from a listener, Michael, uh, who says, I see that Moybridge was a contemporary of another local Brit, John Muir. Were they associated in any way? And they really meet up, um, Rebecca, in Yosemite, right? I mean, maybe not like, you know, sitting there having coffee, but they're, they're sort of Yosemite is what connects them. There's no evidence that you know, John Muir born in Scotland and Moybridge born in England ever met. They do have some things in common as like these guys who come to California and reinvent themselves and become a more expansive, impactful version than they could have been if they'd stayed, you know, back Easter in Britain. But there is this extraordinary moment in 1872 when Edward Moybridge, the other great landscape photographer of the era, Carlton Watkins, the scientist Asa Gray, Helen Hunt Jackson, a white woman who writes powerfully and influentially in defense of Native American land uh, rights and culture, and a bunch of other hugely influential people are all milling around in Yosemite. They're, you know, Darwin's... Um, book on evolution has happened, you know, not very long ago. Uh, The geological record is being examined. There's this huge debate about whether human being, you know, about evolution and how you read the age of the planet and really kind of the meaning of all things in the the rock record. You can still see the sort of glacially shaped valley in Yosemite. And so it's this kind of, well, if God didn't make the world 4,004 years ago on a Sunday, um, you know, what is this world? Mm -hmm. And I think Moybridge's 1872 mammoth plate photographs really reflect this. He photographs a violent, turbulent, chaotic world with a lot of broken limbs and stones and things Mm -hmm. in the foreground. Mm -hmm. And I I think it's his vision of the Darwinian world. You know, uh, Mark, you open the film in Yosemite um, with people who are kind of re-photographing Yosemite, trying to kind of piece together the decisions that were made by the previous generations of photographers as they as they traveled in that area. As you went, you know, along with them, filming what they were doing and you know putting it together for the film, what did you what do you think you learned about the way that Moybridge shot versus the way that, you know, Watkins shot or, you know, Ansel Adams later or any of the people who have 
taken these beautiful photographs. Well, you know, besides the sort of technical side of things and reflecting upon the fact that, you know, getting to a place like Yosemite with this old-fashioned style of photography would be very difficult, you know, I was hearing from photography experts and reading people like Rebecca uh, and and Byron Wolf and Mark Klett, her, her colleagues, and, and they appear in the film, uh, that Mybridge's eye was distinct. And I was very interested in this idea that this, this, this tension between our impulse to see machine-made imagery as uh, objective, as a true, as concrete fact, and uh, the subjective reality, which is that it's a framed version of some something created by the person behind the machine. Uh, who defines for us what we're seeing, especially if it's something we haven't seen before. Like Rebecca was saying, so many people learned of the West uh, through photographs. They didn't have personal experience to draw upon to know what was being described for them. So this idea of an eye, a a way of seeing, particular to a photographer, interested me. Uh, Honestly, it's very subtle. If you look at Watkins and Myridge's work side by side, I had trouble seeing the differences until they were pointed out to me. You know, uh, and they often stood in exactly the same place in Yosemite, photographing the exact same thing. It was like everybody had their favorite spot and other photographers heard about it. Uh, and Mybridge and Watkins worked together at points in time. So, But Mybridge typically, uh, like Rebecca said, he would uh, tilt cameras down. His pictures were disorienting. He would cut off the tops of, of mountains uh, he would allow the dead brush in the foreground to be in the picture. Um, Watkins would just tilt the camera up in that same scene, just slightly, uh, cleaning it up, uh, where you had a much more calm sense of the vista than Mybridge. And uh, Mark and Byron, uh, in our film, we we use this beautiful thing they do, this panorama of uh, Lake Tanaya and Yosemite, which, thank God, they did it because it really helped us explain different points of view because uh, three photographers take pictures over different periods of time, uh, Adams, uh, Weston later, and Myridge earlier. And Adams and Weston's pictures uh, are so similar, their eyes are so similar that they overlap. They take pretty much the exact same picture. And Myridge standing in that same spot, and it's the picture anybody would take. All of us standing there would take that picture. It's of like a dramatic, mm-hmm. you know, mountain. Uh, you know, it's it's the obvious shot. Yeah. And Mybridge is off like on his own, the kooky guy with the crazy ha- with the hole in his hat, uh, shooting this dead tree and this mountain off to the left. Yeah. It's it's so revealing. We're talking about the pioneering photography of Edward Mybridge, based in San Francisco kind of a wild uncle to the idea of motion pictures and even to Silicon Valley. We're joined by Mark Schaefer, director of the documentary Exposing Moybridge, streaming on Apple YouTube and Amazon Prime Video, and Rebecca Solnit, author and essayist, author of River of Shadows. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the pioneering photography of Edward Moybridge. There is a new documentary. It's called Exposing Moybridge. We've got the director of the film here, Mark Schaefer. We're also joined by Rebecca Solnit, who wrote a book about Moybridge called River of Shadows, Edward Moybridge and the Technological Wild West. You may know her from some of her other great work as well. Um, We would like to hear from you, and I want to play you a little cut from Mark's film. It is a film history and theory professor, Tom Gunning, offering uh, this assessment of Moybridge's work from a contemporary. Rodin, the great French sculptor of this era, when he was asked, do you believe these? Are these true? He said, no, Moybridge's work lies. Moybridge gives you the truth of the machine that can stop an image, but it's not the truth of human experience. It's not the truth of human vision. That's from Exposing exposing My Bridge, this new documentary. And we'd love to hear from you. I mean, how do you think about what the camera shows you? You know, I'm even just thinking about when you're on a Zoom, you can change the way that your face looks so dramatically based on the lighting or how much you ask. This is sort of the beginning of that era of uh, photography giving us one truth and our eyes giving us another. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. Rookie, I think it's almost hard for us to imagine how disorienting this was for, you know, particularly people who really cared about um, how the world looked, like the painters uh, of this world. How did they respond? Did they all respond in different ways based on their school of art? Like, t- talk to me about that. I there there were different responses. There was a academic painter named Messonnier in France who prided himself on the realism of his big battlefield scenes and stuff. And I think he actually Mark works. 20 years more recent than mine, May went back and repainted some horse's legs. Yes, he you did know, that, yeah. the painter Thomas Aikens, who actually brought Moybridge to Philadelphia, he was fascinated by these revelations. And Moybridge didn't fully understand what his work was pointing to, although he had a much bigger vision than Stanford did, who really thought it was about horses. Moybridge... <laughs> Among other things, thought he was making images for people to use for painting and drawing. And so he made these huge compilations of people doing different things, bodies shown at different angles. And as I said, I'm Pixar is using them. They're actually incredibly valuable, useful compendiums. And, uh, you know, so, yeah. you know, he didn't fully understand if I could just pop in, I yeah. just want to say, because of the Pixar reference, reference, one of the motives for me making this movie is my, uh, I have a dear uh, cousin, he's much, much older than me, he's now passed away, but he was uh, an animator for Disney in the 1930s, and uh, he had Mybridge books, Mybridge reference books, hmm. and I actually 
had his books on my bookshelf. They would sort of keep me going, and all the grant proposal rejections (laughs) came in. Uh, But, yeah, so MyBridge has this legacy that that continues to this day and has continued through the the years after his death. Um, Rebecca, do you want to talk a little bit about this panorama that he that he took? Yeah, one of the kinds of photography that were that was really loved in that era was the panorama. There are all these cities suddenly springing up. Photography was new. Cities like San Francisco were new. A lot of panoramas of San Francisco were made, and they're usually a hundred and eighty degree view. Um, which is about what you can see with you know from your, your peripheral vision on. Moybridge did something completely weird as this person, as Mark pointed out, whose images are often disruptive, unsettling, sort of rather than normalizing, kind of rendering something strange again. He made a 360-degree panorama, which might be how God sees the world, <laughs> but not how any eye can see the world. And... Uh, they're beautiful. They're disorienting. He made one in 1877 with what's called large plate photographs, which are eight by tens. That's pretty good. And then the next year, he used the mammoth plate camera, the same thing he used in Yosemite, to make these much, much larger 17-inch high photographs um, sort of stitched together to make this 360-degree panorama. And Mark Klett, my collaborator on this Yosemite project where we rephotographed Moybridge and some other people there, had many years earlier rephotographed Moybridge's panorama. When I wrote the book, I actually came to Mark, and he turned out to be, because he was himself a photographer, more insightful than anyone else I could talk to about what Moybridge was doing. And he realized Moybridge was splicing, you know, it wasn't one moment of time. It was take they were taking the light the the light and shadows didn't match up and that it was really kind of cinematic. And so it felt really related to the motion studies as this way of capturing more than the human eye can see, inviting us into a world beyond what our own biological, um, you know, senses allow. Mm. And so he was always making the world strange again one way or another. Did Have you seen that in person, the big panorama? Yeah. Um, the Stanford and Berkeley libraries both have them. And Berkeley wouldn't let me, but Stanford let me, you know, spend some time with the panorama. And then the California Historical Society, I think, has the big one. And it definitely has, has two different versions of the smaller one. But it's like, <clears throat> how big are we talking? I mean, we're talking. I think it is it seventeen feet long. Some, well, Something it's thirteen like panels, uh, yeah. so I don't know how long it is. Yeah. The, but, the the later one is individual, and the earlier one is framed as a yeah. single object. Yeah, and it's also it's it also made me think of Chinese landscape scrolls, which are one of my favorite mm-hmm. sort of categories of art, in that you can't see the whole thing at once. You can sort of travel through it. So it's also cinematic in that, you know, in the way that a landscape scroll is in that you're not taking it all at once. You're moving you're moving through it just as a motion picture kind of moves through, um, you know, the projection camera. Beautiful. Thank you. Let's um, go to Joel in San Francisco. Bring in a caller. Hey, Joel. Hi. I was just... Talking to your sister today, I don't know where where you left off. I was calling about the pictures that that Moybridge took from the Mark Hopkins home when it was under construction. This is the panorama, right? That's where he was. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the panorama. There's there's only five, as I know, five sets 
in existence. Uh, there's one set in Sacramento, one set at Bancroft, I believe. And, uh, and there's a collector who has uh, a complete set uh, down around Geary Street, because uh, I went down there with, with a set, uh, a partial set of, of prints that are the original size that I was given by a client who was moving out of town and found them in his garage. And so we took them down there. We can't say whether they're 100% or not, but the fact is that they are absolutely magnificent. Uh, what do you? What did you notice when you looked at them, Joel? Like when you took a look at them for the you first noticed, time? Yeah. yeah, you notice the wooden, the, the wooden sidewalks and you notice the complete lack of, of people. Sometimes you can see a horse with no head because it's moving its head. Uh, but there's no, you know, there's movement. It's early in the morning. You know that it's movement. And you can see also as the day changes, the time as the images change, as the density of the light and dark. Mm. Yeah. So there you go. That, 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 uh, observation of the sort of uh, neutron bomb effect of uh, early photography uh, where buildings are left standing but people disappear because they're moving. Uh, imagine being asked to take a photograph of a galloping horse. That uh, is the exact same year is wow. the year he took the sequence of horses is the, the year he shot the second of his panoramas. Yeah, Exactly. And so he's, he's pushing the boundaries of both time and space with the panoramas and the motion studies. So interesting. Let's take uh, another caller. Uh, Peter in Florida, welcome. Well, thank you so much. This man is going to possibly fill in a lot of gaps in my knowledge. You know, two things I thought. First of all, I was wondering, does Ansel Adams refer to seeing uh, influenced or didn't like Moybridge? And the other question is uh, New Descending the Staircase by Deschamps. That, I, I connected that with the idea of the multiple frames of the horses. He was doing the same things in art. Am I, can you connect these things together? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, well, Mark, why don't, why don't we start with you on the, the way that artists directly used the motion studies in some of their work, which we've seen um, uh, from you know, Degas and, and other people. Right. So there were... Uh, different photographers approaching this idea of instantaneous photography at the at the time Ibridge was. He was the first to sort of reach the finish line, but his most important contemporary is this guy Marais. And Marais' model was, or approach was to take multiple shots or frames on a single frame, like what we're familiar seeing of like a high jumper jumping over mm-hmm. a bar and you see... The, like kind like, of multiple exposure, on yeah, same frame. background, exactly. but like the, the characters moving in the uh, And... You know, uh, Duchamp comes along later. He does this new descending a staircase. It's much more in the the vein of Marais' approach, where you have all, all the sort of moments of a woman descending a staircase, jammed into this sort of impressionistic kind of uh, 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 image. Uh, but it's been cited that Mybridge was an influence, and certainly Mybridge took pictures of a woman descending a staircase, which were probably the model for what he used. Uh, but Mybridge's influence extends well beyond that in all sorts of strange, odd ways. To Disney, for instance, uh, if you're, if listeners have seen Nope, he pops up in that movie by Jordan Peele. Uh, so Mybridge has this 
this very sneaky way of sort of hiding in the shadows and, and sticking his nose out from time to time. If you look hard enough, uh, he'll pop up in the strangest places. You know, I was looking at some of the motion studies um, just yesterday and, and again this morning, and suddenly like even cubism started to make a different kind of sense for me because you were getting all these odd angles presented all at once. And it sort of was like, well, if you were to just take all those and combine them into one painting, then you'd have uh, one of these cubist paintings. Um, how, do, how about the Impressionists who were working at that time? Do you, uh, Rebecca, do you know how they reacted? You know, nothing comes to mind. I would say that there's a, Mybridge's work takes place, to your point about time, People are beginning to reconsider what time is at the time. Does it move sequentially? Does it happen all at once? Does the literary device a stream of consciousness is invented in this window of, of time, uh, which is sort of everything happens all at once. Uh, and so there, it prompts this philosophical debate that's worked out in art. Um, as, and that's where this sort of idea of putting all the sequential moments of time together in a single moment I guess the other thing I'd say is that photography, much more generally, replaces painting as how you document things that happen. If there's a coronation or a battle or whatever, now you can have a photograph of it. Okay, battles take a little while because photography, as Mark was pointing out, is slow. But, uh, you know, it liberates painting to take on other jobs to represent in much more metaphysical, subjective, imaginative ways than providing useful documents of the world out there. Mm -hmm. Not that that's all that painting ever did or all that photography ever does, but there's this funny way in which the rise of photography makes painting have to rethink what it's for. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You, yeah. you know, the other direction, of course, that this work goes, particularly the motion studies against a gridded background, I can't help but see that and think immediately kind of Taylorism and this increasing emphasis on, you know, making humans into efficient machines as labor. Absolutely. I, you know, for my book on Orwell and his roses, I went to the rose industry in Colombia and got to see what I've never fully seen before, which is exactly that human beings forced to repeat motions through a long work day like machines in ways that will ultimately destroy their bodies and can't be good for their hearts and minds either. And yeah, and this it was a it was in a way an industrialized way of seeing which would allow industrialism to sort of further mechanize the world and uh, had lots of industrial applications uh, with efficiency. Yeah. And as the world speeds up, people become obsessed with efficiency. Yeah. How can you squeeze more productivity? You know, and this becomes in a this is so Silicon Valley and so much of the kind of like you don't have to go anyplace, you don't have to have human contact, you don't have to cook, you don't have to clean is about that, you know, you're just going to be a little producing machine. And so, yeah, this is one of the ways I think the work feeds very specifically and literally into Taylorism and that kind of mechanization of human activity, but also into a mindset about um productivity as the kind of end-all and be-all of what we're here to do. Yeah. I would just add that uh, it, it's sort of, it, you know, Mybridge's work and then the work that follows in Silicon Valley, it, it's all about this boundary between the human and the machine. You know, before Mybridge comes along in his early work with landscapes, the machine is inferior to the human. 
The, mm -hmm. the camera is slower than the human eye. It has a, a capacity to record, so it produces memories. After MyBridge's breakthrough, the machine is superior to the human eye. It opens uh, realities up that the eye can't perceive. That's that mm -hmm. quote from uh, Tom Gunning in the film. Uh, this just continues into the present tense, and there's a point at which you have to ask yourself, uh, well, is this good for the quality of life that we live, that to have a machine uh, that to be that we sort of become, and this is certain something that we're, we're science fiction and people are very interested in now with AI and other things, is when does the does do we become servants of the machine versus vice versa, and who controls the machine, to what ends, whose interests are served, you know Stanford had very particular interests you know, with the railroad and the camera. But those were not universal interests. They certainly weren't the interests of the Native Americans. And the same questions are, uh, are very alive today, even more so. And there's a straight line between these two things. And it's happening in exactly the same space right here in the Bay Area. Yeah, yeah. Rebecca, do you want to just take us out with telling us your favorite Moybridge photo? Do you have one? I don't have a favorite f uh, photo, and there's so many kinds of beauty and strangeness in the images, and they do so much. It's the larger transformation of everything <laughs> that fascinated me and his relationship to things like the ghost dance and the Modoc War, um, mm -hmm. to Edison and the real birth of motion pictures, to the Transcontinental Railroad and the Indian Wars fought to make way for it. All those things I found so rich and strange and disturbing. Mm -hmm. And the research for this book let me really understand how, like, yeah, there's been technological revolutions in our era, but the really big ones happened in the 19th century, disrupting how we had always really lived in biological time, been part of nature in ways we no longer would as, as we became close to the machine, as you could yeah. say. I do love the way that you describe uh, Murbridge as being like a bullet shot through a book, <laughs> basically heading through all these different pieces of, of modernity. Um, one listener writes in to say, Murbridge's uh, photographs represent the world as a strange and obscure place. And now we've completely shifted to representing the world through photographs and video, mostly as a clean, bright, and easy place. It's interesting how much that reflects and impacts the way we collectively learn to see and interpret the world. We have been talking about the pioneering photography and technological you know, inventions of Edward Moybridge, who was based in San Francisco and who in some ways um, helped bring motion pictures and Silicon Valley into being. We've been joined by Rebecca Solnit. She's the author of River of Shadows, Edward Moybridge, and the Technological Wild West, as well as you know, Orwell's Roses, Men Explain Things to Me, a Paradise Built in Hell, and many other excellent books. Thank you so much for joining us, Rebecca. My pleasure. Thank you. So fun. We've also been joined by Mark Schaefer, director of the documentary Exposing Moybridge, the film streaming on Apple, YouTube, and Amazon Prime Video. If you want to see it, there's also going to be a live screening March 16th at Menlo Park's Guild Theater. More info, moybridgethemovie.com. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Thank you. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.